I hope this finds you well. Sounds of New York in the background here, and in case you were wondering, that was Rufus Thomas's famous, redoubtable hit, The Funky Chicken, The Latest Dance Craze. So this past week, you know, I struggled to change a few plans when I knew it was really not going to do much harm, and my friends, that would be you, would be fine with it that whatever we missed, I would surely make up. Rather that, easily. Since I think too much for a living, it doesn't surprise me that my anodyne chitabriti, old Patton Jolly's mental whirlwind, could stand a wee bit of his neroda. Hmm, definitions of yoga. But the best thing about that deeply problematic, and for the most part, terribly unhelpful definition of yoga is that it gives one cause to reflect, especially in the form of a pause, and to ask yourself, just what do you think about what you are thinking? And why do you respond as you do to your habits and your promises, to the ordinary ways you do things, the ways you've always done things, and how these regularities inhabit you to become your own personal claim, your stake in the ground, your sense of self, but also your own personal tornado, living with yourself, trying to be at once both true, consistent, your own true self, and wondering about what that means for you, how you interpret that, because, well, the things we turn ourselves into may not be who we really want to be. Well, you've likely also seen uh, those videos of folks chasing down tornadoes. They're driving towards the storm, of course, which would be an insane idea, much like Frodo running into the fire with the ring, Sam knowing full well this is a dangerous, maybe a bad idea. And yet, if you want to study the storm, you've got to walk into it, or at least head towards it. And here is where Patanjali's stunts in yoga are really of some use, because we don't come to know ourselves any better until we're willing to drive towards the storm. And here is where Patanjali stops being useful pretty much immediately, because his old shtick is to stop the storming altogether that the storm serves no true or useful purpose, and, of course, that there is a stormless option, all of which isn't only false, but pretty much terrible advice on the whole. 
Now I find myself trolling the fictional historical yogin's questionable ideas, something that the tradition has done quite well without me, thank you very much, when what I think we should talk about here are those ways in which our own personal storms, our storms of feelings, ideas, thoughts, and habits, can become, perhaps should become, the subject of our true analysis. We have to drive into those familiar places to make them unfamiliar, that is, to give us some more perspective, witness consciousness, as the Vedantins put it, re-examine our viewpoints, place things in proportion, consider relative importance, shift attitudes, maybe even open to another vista and invite other prospects. Now, all of that can discomfort us, but that is the point of any serious engagement. When learning is too easy, or when you think it is, you never really pay attention, nor do you learn as much as you can. And Krishna reiterates this advice in the Gita when he tells us that until we experience a modicum of discomfort, we won't be listening to what he has to say. So this is, of course, the pebble in the shoe problem, if it's a problem. But now that pebble is more of an auspiciousness, a positive incentive to move, to go forward, aim for growth, create another chance for yet another experience. I didn't mean to say that the discomfort is a good thing, but rather when it's worth it, because it's not always worth it. But then that's another meaning of auspiciousness. What's worth it? What positively incentivizes us? And how do we not lose sight of those ways in which our discomfort is our invitation? So allow me to return to my original point. Uh, The situation in my own case was simple enough. I changed plans this week when I had a perfectly good plan that didn't need much changing unless I wanted to avail myself of a rare enough opportunity that that, too, would be auspicious. So auspicious here means also seizing a rare chance, knowing when it might not come around again, or at least not soon. But I still felt awkward, and while that's my problem, it does raise some interesting issues, I think, worthy of a conversation. If we're paying attention at all, we know we're living in dangerous, volatile times. That seems indisputable. Will humanity survive the climate crisis it has brought upon our fair Earth, our only plausible celestial home? Oh, and by the way, did anyone else see that New York Times piece this week, the contrived photo in the article about outposts and living on the moon? They featured the blue pearl of the earth, seen from what looks like Neil Armstrong's retirement village. Um, Maybe no thank you? I come by my love of solitude, honestly, I think, even my misanthropy, you'll forgive me. Know thyself, but you may be by far a more social by temperament person. All that notwithstanding, even this step to the moon was a bit too isolated for me. And anyways... Where's the rest of humanity? Well, our tumultuous times cannot be gainsaid. It's real that our democracy, 
indeed democracy itself around the world, is in danger because we refuse to take its conditions and its obligations, its requirements and its norms seriously enough. We may not in fact be serious enough people to govern ourselves with the sense and decorum we need, the actual compromise and concessions that would allow us all to live, to live together with genuinely different points of view, values that don't necessarily reconcile, understandings that include needing to employ all kinds of suspicion and contracts, some we can enforce, many we can't, accords we must make with the devious features of a shared human nature. We may not be fit for the hard work that is democracy. I wonder about that, and I don't mean to sound the cynic. But yoga traditions invite us to be serious people. Now, that's not a fun-free zone. Come to the front of your mat. Have a great day. But being serious is a way of saying, we have to see about that. In our current case, I'll confess that I prefer a showdown that asks, what covenants are we making? What bargains do we have to strike? That's a scary proposition because I'm not sure having faith in all of our fellow human beings will bring us the advances we need to secure both our autonomy and the commitment to serve each other with generosity, empathy, maybe even justice. Now, all of that notwithstanding, we're in a turbulent world on all fronts. We should take seriously the threats of violence, not as an exception, but as strategies of those who care not, who care not to bring to any conclusion but their own self-important assertions. So we're in for a rough ride. I'd like to put a date on that, say January 7th, 2025, but, but you decide. We'll find out if order once again manages anarchy, if we fend off our authoritarian need, a need to be told what to do when the clamor of chaos creates a din that doesn't allow us to listen or hear ourselves. Not to be dramatic, it does make sense to say that this clamorous world seems like it offers these days very few restraints on the crazy. But before I digress again into that politics, let's leave politics out of the matter and ask ourselves who we want to be while the world burns and what we consider doing when everyone around us seems hard as walnuts, as indifferent as acorns are to humans, not to squirrels, and as tender and as easily bruised as strawberries. I found this out today. Did you know that there's a new name for the current younger generation of delicate sensibilities? Yeah, they're strawberries because they bruise so easily. But we can't become those things we detest. We mustn't indulge in mockery, neither harden ourselves. So as sure as strawberries are delicious, we mustn't allow our frail nerves and honest anxieties to get the best of us. Now, in the face of such a world, my personal strategy has always been to stay the course, don't lose the plot, keep things as plausibly orderly as possible. I wandered India and much of the world 
as a young man without telephones, much less the internet, back when you could do this, just one accident or robbery or incident from death or just a really, really bad time. And so I've always learned to err on the side of prudence, try not to lose myself, put forward the most important question I can render in any time of really imminent crisis. Would that help? I love telling that story, but does everyone remember the spy in the Bridge of Spies movie with Tom Hanks? The Russian spy busted and confronted with the possibility that the American government will give him the electric chair. Having this being pointed out by lawyerly Tom Hanks, the spy says to the query, you know, they want to give you the chair. You don't look worried. And the spy replies, would that help? This is really good advice. Stay in that question. Would that help? So let's add also up as fine repost that learning, like being a better human, is almost always little by little and again and again. Big breakthroughs happen. There are times when we need to deal with more than adjustments. And when the phrase, there are new developments, means something like, we had better do something now or we'll be really, really screwed even worse. So urgency, while it rarely brings the best decision-making, is a sibling of necessity. And respect for the family of emotions and responses, that's a serious way of bringing prompt innovation into the demanding narrative, into the conversation of feelings. But like I said, I'm inclined to incremental progress, not sudden enlightenment, no matter how Soto Zen argues its case. We should go study that case. And I'm generally circumspect about changing a solid enough plan. You know, if you can't take people at their word, then you become the next Kevin McCarthy, too dumb to be a conniving transactionalist and too incapable of calculation to understand that without confidence, confidence in someone, in something, putting your heart into fidelity, confidence, without that, we are fundamentally reduced. We are headed to a war of all against all, as Thomas Hobbes put it, and we can only be assured that nothing of value happens because not only do we not have a plan, we can't trust in any plan. And that's not just the good ones and despite the bad ones. We're going to need a sense of reliance, credence, expectation, some kind of positiveness to live in more than states of fear, anxiety, and the mere transaction in the moment to survive. There's no way to flourish no way to move the auspiciousness forward without having some kind of plan, deliberate, accommodating, adapting, and most of all, we need trust, at least as far as we can. Certainty is out of the realm of the most worthwhile adventures. Certainty, not so much. We learn the art of as if, as if to become more sure-footed as the world quakes around us. Like Vaclav Havel said in the face of oppressive communism, 
I lived as if I were free. But that postulation that needs, again, something like sure-footedness. I propose not some admonition to greater certainty, but rather a look at the shadow, what happens when we become certain. So let's turn this around a little bit and look at the shadow of certainty and even the shadow of honest plans well-intended. We can turn to Ralph Waldo Emerson, who once wrote that famous line about how a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. Emerson's urging us to be none of those things. But he's assuredly not giving up on principles, much less for the sake of a stalwart heart determined and deciding for goodness or just for what makes good sense. He's asking us not to be too small-minded, to remain open to questioning our assumptions, beliefs, sometimes even our priorities. In good Rajanica form, we're being invited to that paradox of firm and flexible, a sensible plan, and yet adapting as we might, embracing to hold boundaries as complements to bring light and shadow into purposeful and consequential relationship. Sometimes we give up something of each to make the situation more equitable, more accommodating. Being utterly inflexible is not only a bad idea, it defies nature. It's worse than death, because even death moves. To claim that principle refuses all is itself an isolation, a narcissism. This is the failure of yoga, to be left all alone in your certainty. But here's the important takeaway. May I land the plane? And remember that a good landing is called landing because every other alternative is not as good. We need principled folks who are committed and relentless. But principle is not itself virtue. Principled can mean stubborn, adamant. But we can be determined without being rigid. We're not just headstrong or tenacious. Watch out. It's easy to become intractable, unreasonable, ultimately bloody-minded, and worse, righteous about it. We do have to be more persevering and aim for what's steadfast. We've got to figure out that none of these positions or values are virtue until they are virtues. In other words, having your principles and opinions or incontrovertible values or points, this is not enough. If there is no conversation between what it means to be determined and what it looks like to be obdurate, If there is no equal commitment to empathy, open-heartedness, dare I say tolerance, then all of our steady commitment to commitment to being a principled person who stands for and stands with and stands in something of value, all of this is put into jeopardy. Principle is not virtue. It is an invitation to virtue. Like every other human matter that makes us engage ourselves more fully, let's call that yoga, being principled or committed translates as well into being steady and durable, 
reliable, equitable. But to do that, we must remain in conversation with those ideas, with those feelings, and their own shadows. Thus, we cannot mistake being immovable or changeless for constancy or regularity. We should be careful with unfluctuating because its shadow is unfaltering and ain't no one unfaltering. Never has been, never could be, not Jesus, not the Buddha, not Top Cat or Tony the Tiger. Nobody. There is no virtue that cannot become its own adversary because light without shadow gives no range of motion. No way to see how we must embrace a complexity or that paradox to become more reputable when the storm gets stormy. It's hard to establish facts as sound, that is, not just as valid arguments, but sound. And sound means really, really true. We risk tripping over the incontrovertible. We risk thinking as much that really true never exists. And both are unhelpful ways of living in a world that won't work the way we wish it would and never will. So like good Buddhists who define their middle way as a rejection of opposites, mind you, not always the best strategy, but here a very good idea, we should not be too, too sure, neither sure that we can never be really sure at all. It's not a middle stance we need, It's the way in which the storm of extremes pushes and pulls. It causes us to doubt the powers of a dynamic universe in which freedom doesn't mean we get to make any choice we want or every choice, but it means creating boundaries that provide better perspectives, an honest look into the past, a pursuit of meaning in the present, and the hope that there is better than bedlam in the future. Now, for my part, I have to watch out for the kinds of consistencies that make me too reluctant to add a modulation, a little variety, some remodeling. Refinement is worthwhile when we can also recognize the need for reversal. Watch out for revolutions. They rarely turn out well. But when you need one, you should know you really need one. So alas, there it is, when it's called for. Are we listening and receiving what's really on offer? Are we asking ourselves, what does it mean to be true, to act in good faith, and to comprehend that other folks have very different, perhaps incompatible views or values? How do we accommodate? How do we accommodate the incompatible when we feel like we're under siege? And what can we do to bring the virtues of empathy and tolerance to the conversation so that we can find every possible way to relieve ourselves of warranted anxieties or concerns that genuinely threaten us? We must not become hobgoblins of small minds, but neither so true to our principles that we forget that every idea and feeling is in conversation. It's in some relationship, whether we see it or not. Feelings, ideas, the best that we have, present themselves with their own shadows and with other shadows that come in the sphere of conversation. A good idea can be its own adversary, 
an adversary can invite a conversation. So thanks, everyone. I'm going to enjoy these very next few days with friends I do not often see, some I may never see again, to be honest. I'm not so easy with the modest changes I made to our sessions and schedule this week because I never want to let folks down. But without this kind of inner contest, whatever principle I may invoke will have no virtue because it's virtue a sense of decency and goodness that we should be contesting for, not our principles. Our principles themselves may or may not be virtuous, that is, have real value, serve our needs, express our concerns, and invite the possibility that others also are in need and concern. So what is at stake? How do we become more present, more human for each other? Let's call that virtue for now. A bit prosaic. Apologies for the sermon, but thanks for your time. This is what happens when I decide to take a few days, change the schedule for a week, and contend with myself. We'll talk soon. There are a million interesting matters in the news and in our conversations of yoga and history and myth and poetry. Let's show up for each other and have a good conversation while we're doing it. All right. Let's Rufus take us out.